How many of you have ever had the opportunity to meet someone famous? Anybody ever met someone famous or run into someone famous, bump into someone famous? Right after Stacy and I got married, so this was like a long, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, we got the opportunity to go to Nashville to go to the uh, to see the Dove Awards. I surprised Stacy with getting with getting tickets to this, and we spent the weekend there in Nashville, and it was it was really fun actually. But I was a little concerned uh, when the opportunity came my way because uh, if you don't know this about uh, about Stacy, um, she really can't handle meeting famous people. All right, now I've got her permission to share this because. It, it, this t- story is going to take a turn. It sounds like I'm sounds like I'm throwing shade at Stacy, but I'm actually it's going to be at me in just a second. But so uh, I ordered tickets and I made sure that I ordered them in the upper arena, you know, far away from where all of the like, you know, the artists were going to be, you know, the the famous people and stuff. Because uh, Stacy had just gone, we had just gone to camp, and she had literally trapped. Um, Elvis Presley's stepbrother on an elevator. Okay, she because like he had spoken, given his testimony at the camp, and so she had literally trapped him on the elevator uh, to the point where you know the alarm goes off after the door stays open for a while. Um, so she trapped. She says, "Oh my gosh, I saw you on the E True Hollywood story, and you're Elvis's stepbrother, and I just watched you." And I, I mean, just kept on going. There, uh, there were people there to witness it. I wasn't there for that one, but, uh, but anyway. So I thought this is going to be safer for everybody if we order upper arena tickets so that. We don't actually come in contact uh, with, uh, with those poor artists. It's safer for us. We don't go to jail. Safer for them. They don't have to go file a restraining order later on or anything like that, okay? So we get there, and I didn't realize they, had, they, they moved the arena due to some problems. And so everybody's seats were basically like really close access to where everything was going to be. So we walked in. We literally walked in at the same place where all of the artists and the performers for that night were walking in. So we walk in, and this will tell you how long ago it was. I walk in, the first person we see is Darlene Sheck. You know, she was from Hillsong. She wrote Shout to the Lord and a, a lot of those other songs and stuff. And, and we just bump into him. And I'm like, oh, no. And then we look over, and then there's, you know, there's all of these other people, you know, just everywhere. It's like star-studded, you know, as far as Christian music goes, okay? So I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to call people and get bail money for my wife. Uh, here by the time this is all over. Well, we make, she really behaved herself well. She did really, really good. We got to our seats. Everything is going good. Show's going well. But halfway through the show, I'm like, you know, I got to go to the restroom real quick and, and everything. So, uh, run to the restroom. And as I'm coming back, I'm passing by the concession stand and I see this long line for hot dogs. And who is standing there in the back of the line waiting patiently for a hot dog? It's Michael Tate. Okay. So if you don't know who Michael Tate is, he's the lead singer for, for Newsboys now. He was with this old group back then called DC Talk. I know what I'm talking about. Jesus freaks and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, so he's there and I'm like, Oh my goodness, it's like, it's Michael Tate. And you know that story in the New Testament where Philip is like literally transported by the Spirit over to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch? Like he's, he's literally moved, his body is moved by the Spirit. That's what happens to me. It's like an out of body experience. I'm walking back and all of a sudden I find myself in line behind Michael Tate. 
And I don't know what I'm going to do from there. All right. I just totally went fanboy on him. And he turns around. He says, he says, hey, man, how you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. I'm doing great. And I just start talking. Man, I love you, DC Talk. You know, you're, just, you're like the best Jesus freak. I read, I read the book, man. I love it. It's awesome. And I'm like, dude, your sister sings really good, too. She's a singer and stuff. I'm just going on and on and on and on and on. And I didn't realize that like five people had come, ordered, and left before I finally took a breath. In my, and he's just doing this, you know, he's looking at me. So he go, uh, goes up, I give him time to order his hot dog, all right? And then I'm like, I'm not even hungry. We had just eaten dinner. And I'm like, dude, I've got to have a hot dog too. If Michael Tate has a hot dog, I'm going to have a hot dog. I follow him over to the mustard and relish and we're talking and everything. I'm, I squirted like a whole gallon of mustard on my hot dog, not even paying attention, man. He goes, well, listen, man, you enjoy the rest of the show. And, and I kid you not, he ran. He ran away. <laughs> Okay, he ran away and I'm like at that point it hits me I'm like oh my gosh I just I just I just Elvis Presley stepbrothered Michael Tate man There was no beeping of an elevator door But I look and this hot this mustard is just dripping off of my hot dog onto the floor and I'm like oh my gosh So I finally get back to back to the seat and Stacy sitting there she says what took you so long? I'm like, oh, not me. Michael Tate just wanted to have a hot dog with me. You know, I had to, had to go, I had to play it all cool. But anyway, so I had this like, just total like fanboy experience. But the question is, why is it, why is it that we get so excited when we see famous people? Why are there famous people? And why do we have this, this awe of them, do you think? What is it about them? They, they eat hot dogs just like we do. They put their pants on one leg at a time, like we do. They have to shower, brush their teeth. They have to do all the normal things that we do uh, every day. So what is it that makes us so, like, impressed with them, so excited about them, feel so, like, enamored when we, when we see them? I think it's pretty much just because of the image that we've allowed ourselves to accept about them, Right? Because they're human beings just like we are. They're made of dust and of dust and water and breath just like we are. But I think it's how we view them, the image that we have of them, the awe and wonder that we have built up around them. And that's what makes all the difference. Let me ask you a question. Think about the, the person that you probably respect more than anything or the person that you would be most in awe to meet. Now compare that to standing before the throne of God. Have you ever taken a moment to think, what will my reaction be? If I were to stand before the throne of God, because here's the thing, you may or may not meet the most famous. You may not ever meet a famous person. You may never be able to stand there and have a hot dog with somebody like I did. But we all are going to stand before God one day. We all are headed for a meeting with God one day. And it doesn't matter what image you have built up in your mind about God. Your image just isn't big enough. And I think sometimes we make God so small because we almost have to do that so that we can grasp him. But the thing we have to understand is God is big and he is more famous than anybody else. He has more power. He has more authority. He has more and can do more for you than anybody else can either. And there's been very few people in the in history who have been able to see God, who've been able to have that meeting with God while they were living. Moses we see in the Old Testament, he saw God in the form of a fiery, uh, in the form of a fiery bush that was never consumed. Enoch took walks with God. Adam and Eve walked with God daily until they ended up sinning and then they were kicked out of Eden. John probably, the, the apostle John probably gets the best picture of God when he has the vision that he records in the book of Revelation. He sees the throne room and he sees all the things that are going to take place one day at, in the end times. 
But probably outside of John, the most accurate picture, the most accurate view of God that we have recorded in Scripture comes from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1, and we'll read the entire chapter. Let's look at this uh, together. And out of reverence for God's word, would you please stand this morning as we read uh, this passage in its entirety? In verse number 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. And with two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two they flew. And one cried out unto another and said, much like we sang this morning, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Your translation may say the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full or filled with his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of them that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man that is of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people who have unclean lips, because my eyes have now seen the king of the Lord of hosts. And then flew one of the seraphims to me, and having a live or hot coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, he laid it on my mouth. And said, lo, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is now purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying unto me, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. Thank you. You may be seated. And I also want to uh, take a second to welcome those of you who are uh, who are tuning in through our Facebook live feed. This is our first Facebook live feed today. So many people who are traveling or sick or anything that you might be watching right now. So I want to say uh, welcome and welcome you all into the service. But as we have just read this morning, Isaiah gets this picture of the throne room of God. He gets a view of God that we've never had before and never will have because Isaiah uh, is a little bit different than us. He lived at a different time. God worked a little bit differently in the Old Testament than he does today um, in the New Testament or in the church age. He called prophets. Up until this time, Isaiah was working in the courts, uh, in the king's court, in King Uzziah's court. He was a scribe, which was basically, he was hired by the palace. He lived there. He had a room there at the palace. Uh, he got to hobnob with all the big people. He got to record history. He spent a lot of his time copying scripture down. He knew the word. He knew the law. He also knew a lot of famous people. So Isaiah is no stranger to glory and majesty. He's no stranger to throne rooms, but in this vision, He sees a throne room unlike any other. It's unmatched by any throne room that he had ever been in um, in his service to the king and in his his civil service. Isaiah is also the first in the line of prophets that God would call uh, to speak truth to the nation of Israel. Now, Israel, if you know much about their history, they have this on again, off again relationship with God. Okay, it's kind of like a, a middle school relationship. You know, I like you, I hate you. I love you, I hate you. Let's get married, let's break up. You know, all that stuff, this fickle relationship. They'd love God, they'd worship him, then they'd turn their back on him and start following after false gods. They would want to follow him and him only. Then they wanted kings to rule them. They just couldn't make up their mind when it came to God. Does that sound kind of like our lives today? So if you're sitting there thinking, man... I, I want to just like be on with God all the time, but I find myself on like the spiritual roller coaster. The history of Israel is there to show us kind of this is what happens in life when you follow God. It's a constant struggle and it's a constant conscious effort to put God on the throne of our lives. And so Isaiah is the first in line. God calls Isaiah to be this long tenured prophetic ministry that's going to span four kings. 
Uzziah, then Jotham, Jotham and he's going to end with Hezekiah. Um, but he is, he's a prophet of God. Now, a prophet was called to just deliver one message. Pretty much he would spend his entire ministry preaching the same message over and over and over again. And here's the message that God gave him. He said, I want you to go in and I want you to preach that I am getting ready to rain down judgment upon my people like they've never seen before. And we're going to see in just a minute what, what kind of comes, comes along that. But Isaiah is mentioned, he's quoted 50 times in the New Testament. He's quoted more than any other prophet. Because he wrote prophecies about Jesus, the Messiah that would come. That yes, God is going to judge us for our sins. But in the midst of his holy judgment also comes his merciful compassion as the good father. That yes, I am judging sin. Yes, I am holy and I cannot be a party to sin. But at the same time, I'm not going to leave you dead in your trespasses and sins. I am going to provide a lamb. I'm going to provide a Messiah. And I'm going to welcome you into my family through the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. And so it's where we see this two-sided picture of God, that he is holy and cannot be a party to sin, and he hates the sin of mankind, but he also loves the sinner and would give his very only son to redeem us, even though we don't deserve it. So imagine this. He's living there, and he gets this, he gets this what, what God says, all right, good. I want you to, and basically Isaiah says, I'm going to sign on to this. I'm going to be your prophet, God. I'm going to go, and I'm going to teach the message, and I'm going to preach, and I'm going to do all those things that you've called me to do. And he said, all right, here's the message. I'm going to rain down judgment, and here's the thing, Isaiah. Only about 10% of the people are actually going to listen and respond. Now, Isaiah is a scribe. He knows the history. He knows about the power of God. And at that time, he's probably thinking, why even go through this song and dance of me like ministering to all of these people and, and you're just going to they're just going to ignore anyway? Why don't you just wipe them out? How about another flood? You know, show off your power a little bit. Then maybe more people will believe. And God's like, no, that's a that's a good idea, Isaiah. But here's here's the way we're going to do it. I'm going to let you preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. And people are going to ignore, 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 ignore. And then that's how it's going to go. And then I'm going to let them just keep rebelling and then they're going to see what their sin brings them. That's a wonderful call. That's a wonderful existence for Isaiah, isn't it? Isaiah is one of the only prophets. Every, every other prophet records their call into the prophetic ministry. Isaiah is one of the only ones who says he actually, along with his call, along with hearing the voice of God, also got to see the, the, the image of God as well. And I think it's for this. As long of a ministry as Isaiah had, as fruitless as it's going to feel to him, there were going to be times when he was in a valley feeling like no one cared, no one listened to God, that he was going to need to recall that vision of him, to recall who it was he was preaching for, whose truth it was that he was trying to profess. Because I'll tell you this, as a preacher myself, and maybe you're a Sunday school teacher, or maybe you've been ministering or witnessing to someone in your neighborhood or at work, and you think, man, I don't know how many more times I can put the God, I don't know how many more times I can present the gospel and watch them just reject it. Isaiah went through that. And this is why as a church, we need to have a good view of God, of the holiness of God, of the power of God, of the majesty of God, but also of the mercy as well that he has. Because yes, he is a God that will rain down judgment. Yes, he is a God of fire and fury, but he is a God of grace and mercy as well. And he deserves uh, us to have a proper view of him and a proper understanding of him. Because it may be times when you're in the valley, and if you don't have the view of him on the throne, you're going to stay there thinking, God has abandoned me. But God has not abandoned you. He is there. The same God, and, and, and he laid it out for him. 
Jesus laid it out for us in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. If Isaiah was going to finish well, he was going to need to keep a proper perspective of God's glory. Having a proper perspective and a proper view of God makes all the difference in following him. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said that following him is a call to live life upside down. Following him doesn't look like a life of success. Following him looks like a life of sacrifice, a life of denying the way of the world to follow Christ. And to a lot of people, it doesn't make sense. To a lot of people, they aren't going to agree with what you're doing. We live in the Bible Belt. And even now we see our culture shifting further and further and further away from God, which means we're going to feel more and more like Isaiah as time goes on. And so the question is, what is it that's going to sustain our faithfulness? A proper view of God will help us to finish well. And so today I want to look at, I'll give you five quick things that a view of God, what we see from Isaiah chapter 6, from Isaiah's view, we need that same view. Now we may not get that vision, but let's take from what Isaiah saw And let's apply that to our lives. And the first thing we have to understand, if we're going to get a proper view of God, if you're going to take in a proper view of God, you have to look up. To view God, we have to look up. The reason that many of us don't see God working, the reason that many of us are doubting whether God is still alive and active in uh, in our lives and in our world today is because we're too busy looking around instead of looking up. Wouldn't you agree with that? Because there's a lot of stuff to look around at, man. We've got all kinds of flashy things that we can look around at. We've got a lot of scary things that jump in our face a lot of times, too. Bills start piling up. uh, Illnesses, family strife, family drama, you know. And then you turn on your computer or your TV and you see the news. And there's a hurricane here and an earthquake there and and famine here and AIDS over there and cancer there. It seems like we look around... We're going to be destroyed. If we look around, we're going to continually be driven down further and further. But to view God, you must look up. Look what Isaiah says in verse number one. He says, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And it was one thing that he says he's seated upon a throne. His throne talks about his power. But then the position of the throne talks about where we can find God. And he says he was seated on a throne that was high and lifted up. Why would he put that in there? It's enough to say that God was seated on his throne. And then he says his train fills the temple. This vision takes place, as he says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was a good king according to the book of Kings in the Old Testament, mostly. The Bible says he did right, did what was right in the eyes of God. The Bible says that Judah, the kingdom of Judah, prospered. They had a, a, a big time of peace and everything. Everything was going well for him, for them under, under King Uzziah. But Uzziah made a big mistake, and it's recorded in Second Chronicles. Through all that prosperity and through all those things, Uzziah began to get a little bit of pride and arrogance to his life. And he thought, you know, I'm this great king. I did what was right in the sight of God, so I know more than the high priests. So I'm going to take over the duties of the priests. I'm going to take over the sacrificial duties. I'm going to take over all those things. Uzziah wasn't a Levite. He didn't have the credentials to do that. And God, the Bible says that God struck him with leprosy. Here's the thing that we have to understand about God. God wants to be obeyed. And I don't say that to scare us. I'm not saying, hey, go out here and do what God's doing or you're going to get stricken with leprosy today. May happen. I don't know. I'm not. I'm, anyway. 
But what I'm saying is, God expects for us to obey. And when he, when I, when Uzziah, when Uzziah began to step in on God and his plan and his way, what God is showing is because I'm high and lofty and I'm lifted up, my throne supersedes your throne. And that reminds us of something too. We get really worried about who sits on the world's thrones, don't we? We get really wrapped, especially in America, we get really wrapped up in who sits behind the resolute desk in the White House. We're getting ready to get really hyped up about it because it's an election year coming up in 2020. Families are going to divide. Churches are going to, that's all people are going to want to talk about. Here's the thing. We serve a king that sits in a throne that there is no election coming up. There is no election cycle. He is the king enthroned on high for all of eternity. That's who we serve. That's who we serve. And so Uzziah ends up getting leprosy and he dies. Now, Isaiah is watching this happen as he lives in the courts, this time of prosperity. They're wondering what's going to happen. Here's this great king, and all of a sudden he's been struck with leprosy. So they're watching him deteriorate over time. And all all these rumors are coming up because Assyria is over here, and they're getting an army because they're going to capitalize on the king dying, and they're going to come in, and they're going to take over. So everybody's worried. Everybody's scared. They're looking at their human throne, and they're thinking, and they're seeing its mortality. And folks, that's what we have to do as a church today. We have to look around at earth's thrones and realize there's mortality in those thrones. But the throne of God is one of immortal immortality. The throne of God is one of eternal power, eternal sovereignty. There is no match to God. And that's why the best way to get a view of God is we've got to look up above the circumstances, above junk, above the drama. And there sits God above all of it. Isn't that amazing? That our source of help sits above all of our source of junk. It's almost like God knows what he's doing by being positioned there, right? Imagine that God knows what he's doing. You see, because we lose our view of God when we begin looking around at all the stuff. Just like Peter when he fell through the water. We lose our view of God when we start looking around at everything else. When we look at the problems of life that we think they're much too big. We look at lesser solutions thinking that's what will get us out of a situation. We think, oh, man, if I, could just, if I could just get more money, I'd get out of my problem. If I could just get this right medicine, it would, it would cure me. If I, can, if I could just have the right person in office, then everything would be going fine. But God's enthroned above all of that. God stays positioned upward and above us because that's how he is most easily found. What it's saying is no matter how deep your valley may be, if you look up, you will always see your help. No matter how high of a mountain you are on, you still have to look up to see who's really in control and who put you on that mountain. God can be found, just look up. When troubles are coming our way, when we don't know what's going on, keep your head up, keep your eyes up, and God will then lift you up as well. Looking up will also give us a sense of humility. Anybody ever gotten too big for your britches before? I'm not talking about have you gained weight, okay? First Kentucky game was yesterday, and I probably gained about five pounds because we had football food. You know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not talking about getting too big for your riches physically. I'm talking about just emotionally. You just think, man, I'm something. I'm somebody. I have arrived. Kind of how I felt when I walked away from the hot dog with Michael Tate. You know, I'm like, dude, I'm somebody. I am special, right? We get too big for our riches. Here's the thing that the Bible says. Notice Notice what, in verse number one, what Isaiah says as well. The description of God. He's on a throne that is high and lifted up. And then he's wearing this robe. And he says the train of his robe fills the entire temple. It filled the entire room. Now a robe was a vestige of glory and honor and power and royalty. 
And he had this long train, and it says it just kept going and going and going and going, and it filled the room. The other thing was, is this train, this, this, this long robe, he followed that robe all the way up to the throne, which tells us again, if you want to find God, just look up. Follow, follow the signs and the things that are here all around us. Remember what it says, the whole earth is filled with his glory. There are signs everywhere, even in the valleys, even in your trouble, you can find signs that point to God as your help and as your deliverer. Even in the midst of all of those things, all of the things around us point to seeing God. He, David proclaimed that the heavens declare his handiwork. And I love what uh, Francis Chan says. He's a, he's a preacher out in California. He said this, whatever view that we as the church have of God, you can be assured that it's not big enough. See, we, we make God too little. We have to. Even our grandest view of God falls short of how grand he really is because we just can't comprehend it in our minds. It would blow our brains apart. Sorry, that's real graphic, isn't it? Blow our It would melt. That's graphic, too. It would just really stupefy us to fully take in the image and the view of God. So if we want to view God, we've got to look up above the stuff, above us. To realize that God is high and lifted up. The second thing that we have to understand about viewing God is that when we view God, it will ignite true worship. It will ignite a true worship in our hearts and in our lives. So Isaiah sees this robe and it's leading up to the throne of God that's high and lifted up. And then above the throne are these two angels, like sitting at the, at the right and left hand of God. And as Isaiah sees them, they, be, they, they end up flying around. You know, they're just flying around the room and, and all this stuff is going on and they're singing. And in verse number three, here's what it says. One cried to another and they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then it says the posts or the foundations of the room moved at the voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a worship service, right? Right, imagine this. You got six winged worship leaders on fire flying around the room, right? And, um, the bass is hitting so hard that the building is starting to shake and the smoke machines are going off and all kinds of stuff. Now sign me up for a worship experience like that. Now some of you are thinking, no, I don't want to be anywhere near a worship experience like that. Well, this was the worship experience that Isaiah was introduced to. The word seraphim right there means the burning ones. The seraphim, so what Isaiah is viewing is these angels who emanate like fire from their bodies. And to understand the holiness of God, notice what happens to the wings. He used, they used two of their six wings to cover their eyes. That's because they could not view God in his holiness. As majestic as these creatures were, they weren't good enough to view God in his holiness. They covered their feet as well. It was a, uh, an act of submission and an act of reverence to the God that they worshipped. And with two, they began to fly around the room. Now, if you're Isaiah at this point, you're thinking, I've got to stop eating pepperoni pizza so late at night before I go to bed. But here's a couple of things we have to pull from this, from, from their song that they sang. First of all, we need to understand that God is holy. Okay, I don't think you understand. We need to understand that God is holy. God is not just holy, but he is holy. He is holy. He is holy. When it was mentioned three times, that wasn't just because of a chorus they were singing. It's a literary device, meaning that it is emphatically true. He is not just holy. He is not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. That means that there is no one else 
that can match his holiness. And we say he's holy. We attest to the fact he's holy. It's part of our doctrinal belief that God is holy and that sin is, is, is not part of, of him and he is not involved in sin. But I don't think we understand that he is holy, holy, holy. Because I think if we did, we would approach worship, we would approach his book, we would approach our lives completely different. So we've lost the awe of his holiness, I believe, in many ways. And the question is, what will I do to get that vision of his holiness back? You see, a view of God reminds us of his holiness, his power, his glory, his greatness. And we have no other choice but to involuntarily respond in worship. You may have had moments like that in your life where you're like, man, I just I just feel so in awe of God and in awe of what he's done in my life and what he's doing and in awe of his power that your only response is to just worship him is to say, thank you, God. You have no words. You have no, there's just no recourse. The only thing to do is just to sit there and say, I'm, I'm so thankful for you. See, true worship comes from a heart of awe and adoration and respect for God's immensity, his holiness, and his goodness. It, what it is is it's an awareness of everything that God is that you and I are not and can never be apart from him. It's understanding that he is holy and righteous and I am lost and undone and wicked and there is no way that I can approach his holiness but what he himself doesn't bring me to him. I have no recourse on my own to come to God. I have no recourse on my own to come to God. And I have nothing redeeming in myself that should make God give me my next breath. But he chooses to do so. And for that, he deserves to be worshipped. Our worship should be an involuntary response to God's goodness and an accurate view of his greatness. That's the kind of worship that he desires, and that's the kind of worship that makes, makes a difference in a world that doesn't know him. So a view of God will give us a true heart of worship. A view of God also, number three, will reveal our sin. You see, we can't gaze upon the holiness of God without all of a sudden becoming very aware of our unholiness. Right? Look at what Isaiah, look what happens to Isaiah. We saw how the seraphim worship. Now let's look at Isaiah's worship is completely different than the angels. In verse number five. Then I said, woe is me. Because I am undone. I am undone. Now that word in the original Hebrew means I am shell-shocked. I am just, I have no recourse. I have no act. There's nothing I can do. I'm just stuck in complete shock. And then he says, I'm a man that is of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And why has that happened? What has caused this reaction in him, in Isaiah? He says, because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. What caused Isaiah to stop dead in his tracks and have no words, no response, no reaction, to be completely shocked is just a mere vision of God. And today, church, I think we're just, we've become so consumeristic in the way we approach things. We think, man, we don't go to church to view God anymore. We go to church to say, all right, what am I going to get out of it? Rather than what am I going to offer in the presence of my God? We don't enter into our quiet places and our quiet time. We don't open his word and realize that when we read the word, we're reading the words of that very God who sat high and lifted up. And when we come face to face with God's holiness, we then come face to face with our wickedness and our brokenness. 
just like Isaiah did. This is the first word that Isaiah utters in the presence of God. These are the first things that he says. He doesn't say, he doesn't look at the seraphim flying around, the robe. He doesn't look at the room. He doesn't feel the room bumping and moving and say, wow, this is cool. He doesn't say, well, this is impressive. I haven't seen this before. No, what does he say? I have nothing to say. Why am I even here? Why am I even allowed to be in this place? See, God's holiness reveals our wickedness. He says that word undone, dama, meaning to be dumb or silent, to be cut off, to be brought to silence. He's speechless. And then he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And that doesn't mean that Isaiah's got a potty mouth. That doesn't mean that he's gone a little PG-13 or R-rated with his, with his language. Doesn't mean he's been telling dirty jokes or anything like that. What he means is, it means that he's talking about the fact that he realizes that his sin is not just a little thing in his life. That his sin is completely encompassed him and has reached the outer extremities of his body. The lips were known, the lips in, in that culture were basically the, the last gate that, that things pass through out of the body. And so what he's saying is, I am so eaten up and I am so broken in sin. I am so, I'm so full of wickedness in my body that it has literally reached the very tip of my lips. What he's saying is, viewing your holiness makes me realize that I am completely and totally unredeemable apart from your grace. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you gotten used to the grace that God has given us? See, because his grace is supposed to continually inspire us. When we come face to face with him, when we look in his word, the Bible says that it's a mirror that shows us our, our inconsistencies and our inadequacies and calls us to greater things. But you see, the mindset that we have today in our lives is basically this. Just be yourself. Be true to yourself. Be who you are. Don't let anybody ever try to change you. Just stay the way you are. But the Bible says that happiness and righteousness comes from continually and consistently and intentionally rearranging our lives and being molded and formed into the shape of Jesus Christ, into the image of Jesus Christ. But the mantra of the day is just be yourself when it should be. When it should be, be holy as I am holy. We hear it all the time. Just, just, do, just do what makes you feel good. You do you. That's kind of the way it goes. And it seeps into the church as well. It seeped into Christian theology as well. But here's what the Bible says. God calls for us. He says, I am holy, so be holy like I am. Be holy like I am. When we get a picture of God's holiness, it calls us to this place where we understand that we are not holy. And it should call us to repentance. How's the view of God in your life affecting the purity of your life? Is the question we have to consider there. The next thing is that a view of God will change you. A view of God will change you. I mentioned before that there were some, a few people in Scripture who saw God, who were given glimpses of him. And in each instance, that momentary interaction with the almighty, sovereign Lord of heaven changed them forever. They were never the same. Moses was never the same. Never the same. Enoch was ushered into the presence of God. John was never the same. We're never the same after we come into the presence of God. Look at verse number 6. It says, then one of the seraphims flew over to me, and he had a live coal in his hand. 
And he laid it on my mouth, or he touched it to my mouth, and he said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Heat, fire, burning is that, is that metaphor for cleansing. Isaiah said, look, I want to do what God is calling me to do, but I'm unclean. There may be a lot of things that God is calling you to do. Understand this. The only way you're going to do it is by God carrying you through it, preparing you for it, cleansing you for that act. And that's exactly what God does here with Isaiah. Isaiah didn't even know what to do. He's, he's just he's sitting there. He's like, I'm undone. You kind of get the idea. He's just standing there like, what do I do now? Isaiah didn't know what to do, but God did. And you may be in that time in your life right now, too. I don't know what to do. You're shocked. And maybe you're not shocked by the presence of God. You're shocked by all the things that you're seeing around you or all the things that are pressing in on you. You may not know what to do, but understand this. God does. You may not know what even what you need, but God does. And here's what we all need. We all need forgiveness. We all need to be cleansed. We all need to be purified by the Father, by the touch of the Father. When we see the Lord for who he is, we have no other choice but to cry out for forgiveness. One thing that I think that we don't practice enough today in our Christian life is that daily cleansing, that daily time of saying, God, reveal to me what's not pleasing to you. Reveal to me what I can change in my life through your power. What are you calling me to? I know you're not calling me away from you. You're calling me to a closer relationship. So so reveal that in my life. See, forgiveness and cleansing are always available. But we're not always seeking it out like we should. We settle for a less than accurate view of God in many ways. Thinking, oh, God's just okay with everything. We realize that God is merciful. but That doesn't mean that he's okay with everything that we do. He's merciful and he's full of grace because that's the way he deals with the things that are not pleasing to his holy sight. And those are those things are supposed to call us to a place of gratitude as well. And this one, this one's pretty quick because they're back there cutting me out. You know, <laughs> you, you messing with the volume back there. No, I'm just messing around with you. The last thing is that a view of God, we have a proper view of God. It inspires worship. It reveals our sin. It changes us, but then it inspires service. It will inspire service in our lives. In verse number 8, now God speaks. After Isaiah finally speaks and says, I'm undone, here's what God says. And this is amazing. Isaiah says about himself, I'm undone, I'm not worthy. And here's what God says, oh yeah, you are. He says, who will go for us? Who shall I send? Who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. After seeing this Lord high and lifted up, this throne that he's never seen before, the train of his robe, the seraphim, all of those things going on, he's now been purified. He's been cleansed by the grace of God, and he says, let's get to work. I'm ready to get out there and start preaching that message, and 90% of the people spit on me, yell at me, turn their back on what it, what's going to be said. I'm ready to do that. After seeing this holy and compassionate father, his only compulsion is to serve him. We have the proper view of God. It won't be a difficult or a drudging task to serve him. It won't be hard for us to find the words or find the time or find the way to share Christ with other people. 
It won't be hard for us to persist through rejection. It won't be hard for us to persist through toughness, through people not necessarily understanding what we're doing, through people being uh, not so kind to Christianity because we realize that who we serve is not the people we're trying to reach. Who we serve is the God that we're reaching them with. When we have the proper view of God, it's not difficult to go and tell others. It's not difficult to give of our time, of our talent, and of our treasure. And when it does become difficult, a view of God calls us right back to the proper perspective. The only proper response to salvation is service. See, I don't believe that we are saved to just sit in a waiting room until we're called up to heaven. We're saved to serve him. We're getting ready to start a... Uh, an evangelism campaign here, and it's, it's going on in a lot of churches across uh, across the nation, actually, in Southern Baptist churches all over the place, called Who's Your One? Asking the church to think, who is one person that God is burdening you for that doesn't know Christ that needs to know Christ? So let's start there. Here's the call. Who will go for me? Who shall I send? Will you stand up and say, I will go, and I will go to this one person that you have challenged my heart with? Will you do that? Maybe we just need a fresh look at God. And as we're moving towards our invitation this morning, that's the thing that we come to this morning. How do I respond? How do I, what do I do now in response to God's word? See, Isaiah had to have a response to his view of God. What is your response to the view of God in your life as well? Maybe you need a fresh look at him. And a fresh look at God will reveal that none of this is about God serving us. Oh, he served us. He sent his son. But none of this, this life that we live is about him serving us. It's about us serving him. He saved us so that we could, and so that we could serve others by showing them his glory in this world. So the question is this morning, what view of God do you have? If we have an accurate view of God, we will want others to see that as well. If we have an accurate vision of God and his glory and his power, it will produce holiness in our life, a sense of rededication to him on a regular basis. When we have an accurate view of God, it beckons us to come to him. As fearful as that vision may be, and as it may have been for Isaiah, his ultimate response was, I want more of you. And that's the beauty of God. As righteous, as holy, as just as he is, it beckons us to him.